Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, April the 16th, 2018, and it is officially past National Tribute to the Great Beast Day. We call that tax day, and I don't, there's two kinds of tax days. There's the final day you have to get all your crap right for uh, submitting it to the beast for the taxes last year, and then you have the other tax day, which is how long you work to pay for government this year. We haven't quite got to that one yet, but I went and gave my tribute to Caesar uh, this, this weekend, met with my CPA for the final time on the 2017 taxes, and I won't tell you what I paid, but I'll tell you it was far too damn much for the oppression that I get in return for it. Uh, and for the dissatisfaction I have with everything that's done with our money across the, the, the world. And, and when I factor in how small a percentage uh, uh, of my money was used, if you figure it out, how, for the 220-odd million dollars we just spent to, uh, to bomb Syria, to bomb Syrians because they bombed other Syrians, you can see where I would be upset with how my money is spent. And I think most of you would have a, a similar story. Even if you are okay with that, I'm sure there's something that's done with your money that's reprehensible by your government. And uh, if we're going to have a state, and you know what I'm for, I'm for that stateless society as a goal, but if we're going to have a state in the interim, maybe we should have a more representative form of a republic by being able to at least check off a box and say, this is what you can and can't use my personal money for that I have contributed to the system. That might be awful interesting in how it would alter things. Anyway, enough about my personal bitching because I had to uh, to go pay the man. Actually, I, I got a refund. I got a refund of my own money, but it was uh, was the the amount balance remaining paid in full to the uh, state that bugged me. But before we go, let's not go into that anymore. Let's let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. I got a couple things in the the lead off here that are really about um, what uh. Part things from from me directly. Number one, I am starting to build our social media presence on a, a new site called MeWe, like me and you, or MeWe, me and we. Right? Uh, I want to talk about why I'm doing that for a bit, and I'm not leaving Facebook, but I'm kind of leaving Facebook, sort of, kind of. We will see, type thing. Um, and then I'll have a, a message for you guys on the concept of taking small steps on any journey. I have a question on getting started with small scale aquaponics and being able to scale up later. I have defending your home without firearms in the situations you might be in to have to do that. Uh, I have a question on the 22 caliber pistol for self-defense. Um, I have understanding plant hardiness zones and how it isn't really black and white. I have dealing with squirrels eating fruit from your trees. I have will we ever learn? Look at what we're doing with mortgages again. And I have a question on choosing an above-ground pool. So a very varied uh, uh, group of topics for today's show. Um, before we move forward, I also want to remind you guys, if you're like, man, I want to talk about this, or I wish you'd talk more about that, then participate in the show. Email me, jack at com. Put TSPC in the subject line with whatever else you want to put in the subject line, but TSPC, like it's a word first, that way I'll find it if it goes into the bin of spamness. 
and uh, ask your question or make your point in one or two sentences. Hit the return key a couple times to give me details, and you can steer the discussion. Three of the shows every week are directly steered by you, the audience. So participate if you want them to be different. All right. Before we get into these questions, let's go ahead and uh, hear about this year in history. The year in history this year, we have the Traveling Emperor in the year 119 A.D. Trajan had never been a micromanager and had told his governors to take care of their own problems. Hadrian is far more a hands-on and decides that if an emperor is going to rule the empire, he should be familiar with every part of it. He leaves Rome and sets off on a multi-year journey of the, of the empire, where he will visit every province. He spends this year preparing for the journey and stabilizing the political situation in Rome. My take by David Verne. Hadrian will end up traveling more than any emperor before or after him, and it sets the tone for a growing trend. The city of Rome was slowly becoming less politically relevant. Power was not seated in Rome. It was seated wherever the emperor chose to hold court. This trend will continue until emperors won't even go to Rome and other cities are chosen as capitals. Rome was too far from most fronts, which made it difficult for the emperor to react to military problems. Kind of valid, isn't it? You're in Rome and you have something going on, you know, in, I don't know, middle Africa or well out into uh, Asia. How long does it take for someone to go, hey, dude, this is what's happening. What do you want us to do? And for you to say, hey, this is what I think you should do next. Kind of takes a long time for that type of thing to get through when you don't have, you know, FedEx or cell phones or telegraphs or what have you, right? And there were actually some pretty interesting ways that they communicated, communicated, communicated across vast distances, but there were still many, many limitations. And this is probably the primary limitation that was placed on the Roman Empire was the ability to have rapid communications, and as the empire expanded and began to collapse under its own weight, this was a big part of it. It was also the beginning, I don't know if we'll really see this fully, but to me anyway, as I looked at history of Rome, um, as this began to happen was really the beginning of the end. Because without a centralized ideology of what made you a part of the Roman Empire, without a, 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 a binding ideology, the whole thing began to fractionalize. And there's a lesson there because a lot of times countries become way too big or maybe states become way too big, states big or little case. And eventually the desires of the people in power are, are affecting people thousands and thousands of miles away from them in ways you can't even really think about. And the people that can't quite get anything they want anymore because if people that are a thousand miles away start to be really resentful and start saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't be part of that thing anymore since they don't listen to us. Especially when you have a democracy. When you get into a true democracy, the will of 50.01% overrides the will of 49.99%. That's why we're supposed to have a republic here, but eventually even in a republic you get there. You start seeing things like, well, should this state be part of the country anymore? Should this region be part of the country anymore? Does Washington have a damn clue what we really want, need, or desire out here? Or even, what I've seen recently, people in California saying, maybe California doesn't need to secede from the Union. Maybe we don't need Cal Exit. Maybe we need Cal 3, where California's thinking about splitting up into three distinct districts. And I think they have over 600,000 signatures 
on a petition to get that on the ballot in California. I'm not saying it'll pass. I'm just saying if you get 600,000 people to sign on to something, there's a sentiment in the air. History doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. We might be seeing that in the middle of this U.S. empire right now. Where it goes, we can only look to history to see the probable courses of action and the multiple different outcomes that there could be. With that, let me remind you guys about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, Western Botanicals. I believe that herbal medicine is really a great thing, and you should consider it in your own needs, and you should look first to Western Botanicals to see if they have what you need. Western Botanicals is a place where real people will answer the phone who really care about you and help you with real customer service based right here in the United States, not somewhere in Delhi or Mumbai. And that means that you're going to get a real person that understands what you're looking for and can help you out and point you in the right direction. They also give their discount membership program for free to all members of the Survival Podcast MSB. You can learn more about that in the benefits section of your MSB if you are a member. Next up today, Ready Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. Point, click, and buy, ready-made, ready to go on their website, and they have everything for your prepping needs that you could want right there. And I mean it from uh, long-term storage food to the stuff to store your own food long-term, gardens to guns to practical to tactical and everything in between. You'll find it at the company that does what it says and says what it does, ready-made resources at readymaderesources.com. Also, they do a discount for members of the MSB in that benefit section. On that MSB thing, guys, you know, If you are not yet a member of the MSB, please consider please consider becoming one. If you become a member of the MSB, you will get discounts to all these great companies, a lot of other great benefits. Every once in a while I get a question, hey Jack, how can I get every episode of the Survival Podcast um, in one go? How can I get it all in like a mass download? Okay, well, today's episode is 2,204. And believe it or not, bandwidth, even my server, you know, bandwidth pull does affect my server. So many, many years ago, um, I, I started to realize as the show got popular, we had like 400, 500 episodes back then. People would find the show and go, this is cool. And they'd go on iTunes or, or, or something similar and go, download all. Well, if four or five people in a day, <laughs> okay, right, download all. So it's not just the sheer number of downloads, but from one location or four locations, the entire catalog in a continuous download uh, it's a problem. So what we've done is we put all of the episodes in 24-episode blocks on uh, zip files. They're all available in the MSB, so that's another benefit of the MSB that you can consider joining. Five bucks a month, 50 bucks a year. Either way, it works out to about 18.3 cents at the $5 price, about 20 cents an episode. So if you think it's worth two dimes an episode, consider joining. Go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. So getting into things today, uh, let's talk about social media, Facebook, all of the revelations that have come out. I've, I've stayed pretty quiet on it. And the reason I did is whenever anything's controversial, I like to actually, you know, get all the information that I can before I go shaking my mouth off about it. And, and here's overall how I feel about Facebook and privacy concerns and stuff. They're sharing our data, man. Well, duh. Well, duh. And every one of these, uh, these little apps, like take a quiz to see what beetle you would have been or, you know, what your IQ is based on how stupid you are on Facebook or whatever it is. Every single one of them, every single one of them says to do this, you need to allow this application to see what you do and what your friends do on Facebook. And this is what no one's talking about with this story, right? Is that the problem with the data that was quote unquote stolen 
is not that the data itself was stolen or even acquired by the company that then sold it to somebody that used it to run political ads. Right? That's not the problem. That's not even the problem they're saying is the problem, but that's not what you're hearing because they like to get everybody outraged. So the, the problem was that the company that was running the app was allowed to have the data, but after a period of time they were supposed to no longer be able to have access to the data according to Facebook's policies. That period's about 90 days unless people then engage again with the app. But they were able to retain access to the data that they were already given permission to, but for longer than they were supposed to. So I'm not pissed off at Facebook about that in general because they're pretty honest about it if you actually read the little disclaimer whenever you agree to this shit that you're letting them have access to you and your friends. And, you know, so it, 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 what I, I want to talk about now is this, this new social platform, MeWe, that I'm starting to use and why I'm using And I want to just kind of come out from the beginning and say, well, I'm not exactly pleased with Facebook as a whole. It's not like I'm butthurt and angry over this. Like, I hate Facebook now and I'm leaving. There's thousands of you that continue to engage with me on Facebook. And until that number really wanes, wherever my customers are, I will be. Wherever my community is, I will be. So I will use that platform. But I'm starting to build out MeWe, and, and there's a couple reasons for it. One, it's a lot like Facebook. So any Facebook user that gets on there will immediately be able to figure out, with a few little different things, how to use it. Uh, number two, they do have a respect for your privacy. At least they claim that they do, where Facebook claims that they don't. And your data is your data, and you can choose who to share it with and how on MeWe, which, by the way, you used to be able to do on Facebook until they took it away. Yeah. Okay, just saying. Um, but I think it actually works better. When you log into MeWe, you see all the people you're connected to, all the stories you commented on, etc., based on how recently it was posted or how recently something new happened with it. So if you if you read an article on, on MeWe and you commented on it and then somebody else followed up to that comment, it ends up back in your newsfeed. But if no one comments in on, or anything else happens with it, it kind of falls to the bottom as new things replace it. How's that different from Facebook? That's not how Facebook works at all. That's not how Facebook works at all. Right now I'll do a post to my page on Facebook, where I have 110,000 followers on my page. And 2,200 maybe will see it. Unless it kind of goes viral and gets outside of the fold or whatever. It'll be seen by about 2,200 people. 2%. But for $150, Facebook is willing to make sure that, let's say, 30,000 people who already follow me willingly can get to see it. Really? Yes. Really. And this is why you're on Facebook and you see that same stupid picture or same stupid story that you're done with over and over and over and over again, but you talk to your friend and your friend's like, did you see that I put up a picture of the new babies on Facebook? And they're like, no, I didn't see that. And you wonder why you didn't see it when this is your good friend that you've been connected to for like 10 years, but you keep seeing some political bullshit. That's because the Facebook algorithm decided that's what you want to see. And that's what they want you to see because that's what you engage in most, which gives them what they want, which is data and activity. So I think that content providers are being screwed by Facebook because you're holding my own people who have willingly asked to see my content hostage and making me buy access to my own people. So that alone is a pretty good reason for me to join MeWe. But the other reason for me to do it is because it works better. The way the groups function works better. 
I, I haven't figured out how to do it on the phone app yet, but when you're on your computer, if you click on groups, you can just in your feed see nothing but activity from all your groups, which is kind of cool. Facebook does not do this. Very easy to share material. Uh, I would say easier than Facebook. And their business model is one that I think is sustainable without screwing people. They give you eight gigs of space to store pictures and videos. And after you, if you hit eight gigs, you can either delete some stuff or you can buy space. That's one of their business models. They have a, a corporate level program, an enterprise program that allows group communications to basically replace email for communications within your team. Is that not much different than Slack? In some ways it is, but in some ways because of other things it really isn't. It's a lot easier to look things at hit from a historical standpoint, canonize into different classifications. Uh, they have a lot of other ways that they monetize their platform with a willingness of a customer to pay for a service. This means that when you go to MeWe, uh, even using their freemium, which is a, a definite thing in Web 2.0, you are the customer and the platform is the product. When you go to Facebook, they're very upfront about this, by the way, if you really look at it. You are not the customer of Facebook. Facebook does not view you as the customer. You are the product on Facebook. Your data is the product on Facebook. Your activity is the product on Facebook. The customer is the advertiser. The customer is the advertiser. The customer is the person that wants to be able to reach you based on your demographics. Now, I actually don't have a problem with this if it's done ethically without actually giving away the data about you to the advertiser, which is not what they're doing. They are doing that, I should say, and I don't like that. And what I mean by that is if all Facebook did was serve ads to you based on your demographics, in other words, since I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, I see ads for Pittsburgh Steelers merchandise, I actually think that's a very beneficial service to the advertiser and to me, the product, right? Because I obviously like stuff from the Pittsburgh Steelers because I'm a fan. And I would much rather see advertisements for gear and, and stuff from the Pittsburgh Steelers than the Dallas Cowboys that I hate. Right? So I'm okay with the, the general concept of since we know this is the stuff you like because you say so publicly, here's stuff from our advertisers that matches what you like. That's much better than me seeing advertisements for Paxil. Right? When I, when I hate the organized drug companies of the world. So I, But it's when you, what they're actually doing is saying you can collect the data and take it with you. That's, that's a problem. So MeWe to me seems to work better, have a better model, and because of the model, they're incentivized to continue to improve the platform for you, where who is Facebook incentivized to improve the platform for? Their customer, which is not you. By the way, I'm their customer. I'm their customer. But I'm not their dream customer. I'm a small business person that built my own thing that primed their pump for them. No, their dream customer is the corporate entity that doesn't give a shit about $1,000, let alone $150, doesn't have their own page with thousands and hundreds of thousands of people on it, and just wants to pay for access. That's the customer they really serve. So I'm going to start putting more effort into building my presence on another platform because I think it's better for everybody involved. You guys that follow me and me, because imagine if I had built 100,000 person page on MeWe. Well, now when I put out content, like the majority of those people would see it, and I wouldn't have to pay for them to be able to see it. So if you want to know more about MeWe, I'll have a link in the show notes today where you can go over and sign up. I'll have a link to my personal profile. 
things like that. And uh, come check us out. We already have a TSP group over there. We have a built-on for breakfast group, and I'm involved in quite a few other really cool groups. And it's it's nowhere near as active as Facebook, but it's not you know it's not like you you log in and it's crickets. If you know some people and ask some people and get involved and join some groups, um, it's growing and it's growing fast. I would say that. The, the, the new groups on MeWe are going faster than the groups on Facebook. Now, that's because they're brand new, but I don't know. I like the growth trend, and I, I like the platform. I think if you try it, you'll like it. There's some things that you'll be like, How, why doesn't that work or whatever? And uh, once you figure them out, you go, oh, that makes sense. You're just kind of wired to the Facebook model. All right, next up, uh, I want to talk about something that happened on MeWe right away that, uh, that prompted me to make a meme today. Uh, and, and also, it really was put. I put it out on Facebook as well into a lot of groups there because I've seen other things that apply to it. But a guy set up his aquaponics first project, and uh, that also like leads right into the the first question of the day. So the guy sets up this aquaponics project, and it's basically like a little pot with a pepper in it and like water trickling through it. And so it's like a single plant system. Uh, probably more a hydro system because I don't know that he had fish involved in any way, but it's a start. And he he said something to the effect of, "My first my first project, it's small, but we have to start somewhere." And I responded with, "You know, you should never apologize for the scale of a first step on a journey that most people that would criticize you will never take." I was like, "Hey, that's," and it was just off the cuff. They put a lot of thought into it. It was just my gut visceral reaction. So then I was like, let's formalize that a little bit. And I, I built the meme that is the featured image for today's podcast. And it's this beautiful path through a forest. And here's what it says on it. Every journey and every endeavor begins with a first step. That first step is often very small, but make no apology for the size of any such step. As though they criticize such steps have seldom taken a single one themselves. And that's what I've noticed in just about everything that we do that's in social media. When somebody puts something out, they're like, well, that sucks. Or like, you know, we talked to the whole podcast a few weeks ago about what's sustainable and what is it, what's regenerative and what isn't. That sucks. You know, that's not regenerative. Or somebody's starting their preps and they, uh, they start out with 10 gallons of water in the closet. Oh, you'll be dead when the zombies come, stuff like that. And, and it, it's not limited to what we talk about, is it? It's in almost every walk of life. The Eeyores of the world, right? The, it'll never work. And then the, 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 the criticizers of the world, that you're stupid, that's not going to work, you're an idiot, that's too small, that's insignificant, what you do doesn't matter. All of those people generally, in the world that they're there criticizing or talking about or speaking as though they know, have done little to nothing, if anything, to further that agenda or that goal. Right. There's a, another saying, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something like, you know, those that say something can't be done should not stand in the should not get in the way of those who are doing it, who are those who are currently doing it. And it's the same type of thing. But what I want to encourage you guys with with that today is whatever it is that you want to do, whether it's start a homestead, whether it's start a business, whether it's start a side hustle, whether it's learn a skill or a craft whether it's take up a new subject to learn about it. I don't care what it is. Take one freaking step. Take one freaking step. Do one thing in that direction. And then the most important words of criticism to not listen to 
are not the asshats in the peanut gallery on the side when you post a picture of it going, oh, that's pathetic or whatever. That's not going to work. Or I tried that and it didn't work, so it won't work for you. Or whatever it is. That's actually not the worst words of criticism. It's the internal dialogue where that person who makes that post has the feeling of the need to apologize for how small the step is to people that would judge him that had not taken a step of their own. That's that internal dialogue that we need to fight. When you take that first step, use words of encouragement with the internal dialogue of, well, that was interesting, that was easy, that worked, or that didn't work, but I learned something from it. What's my next step? And you take another step. What's my next step? And you take another step. And learn to walk. Actually, learn to crawl. Then learn to walk. Then learn to run. Then set your pace and settle in on the marathon to get it done. And, and that just applies to everything and anything that we can do. But we might want to think about that first step a little bit if we have larger plans. And then sometimes even that doesn't really matter because sometimes that first step can be so small yet so educational that if we then scrap the results and start over with something new, with new knowledge, the knowledge gained was worth it anyway. So with that, let's go ahead and uh, take this next question. So this uh, first question comes from Chris. Chris says, I want to do small aquaponic system in the summer. Is there a YouTube video or a book you'd recommend about how to get started? I want to be able to expand later. Uh, this will be outdoors probably on the south side of my home. I live in Michigan due to space and a wife that will say, no, this will not be a winter indoor system. Uh, well, first of all, Chris, I want to explain something about the uh, the indoor aquaponics project playlist that I have out. I, I thought I said it like a hundred times uh, while I was doing those 12 videos or whatever it is. That is not how to do indoor aquaponics. That's not what that was ever supposed to be. That's not, here is how to do indoor aquaponics, right? What that is, is here is how to do aquaponics, which I happen to be doing indoors because it's winter, and I need to overwinter my fish, and it's cold outside, and I don't want to be there, so this let me provide the educational framework to show you exactly how to do aquaponics. So if you wanted to know the, uh, the number one resource that I would give to build an aquaponics system right now, it's that playlist, and then just do that outside. Okay, uh, I want to give you more help in that, but I kind of want to reinforce, like, I, 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 there's a lot of people that like, well, you know, I, there's fish smell, and I, do it outside. I, <laughs> I don't get it, man. I did this indoors because I needed to set up a system to overwinter fish, and I went, I know, instead of doing what I'm going to tell Chris to do as his first project, I'll do it bigger so I can do more with it to show people more. That's all that it was. So if I had to do that again next year, let's say I decided I had some fish, I wanted to overwinter, and they were tilapia, and I didn't want to overwinter them. I didn't want them to die, or I didn't want to process them. I wanted them for next season. I would take a 100-gallon Rubbermaid tank, and I would build a single ebb and flow bed out of either a 21-gallon paint tray or out of a 50-gallon Rubbermaid tank. I would throw it across the top of that. I would put one little bitty pump in there, and I would start running it. And then, of course, since it was inside, I would throw lights over it. It was outside, obviously, I don't need lights, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty simplistic, isn't it? Okay, so what I would recommend for Chris is it depends on your budget. Assuming your budget is a couple hundred to three hundred dollars for this initial system and that you want to build it bigger, what I would really recommend is that you go out and get yourself, because uh, I get to hear a wife involved here, you can do this with IBCs. 
And it doesn't really matter if you use IBCs or Rubbermaid tanks. And IBCs have the advantage of they're cheaper, and you can probably get one that's uh, food grade and being recycled and save it from a landfill. So that's that's good ecologically. The advantage of the Rubbermaid tanks is they are going to last for damn near ever. They're pre-plumbed with bulkheads for you. Uh, and they're very modular when it comes to changing things around and, and making decisions in the future. And because they kind of have this fixed dimension and all, they're really easy to do things like build them in with wood facings and facades and make them look pretty and make wives happy. So I'm going to suggest that your first project, this would be a great way to do it. Go out and get yourself a 100-gallon Rubbermaid stock tank and a 50-gallon Rubbermaid stock tank. Get a three-quarter inch bulkhead and build a bell siphon for the 50-gallon stock tank. Turn it laterally, or, you know, horizontally, and put it on top of the 100-gallon tank. Set the 100-gallon tank somewhere and fill it up with water. If you have city water and you can't use rainwater or well water, dechlorinate it and always dechlorinate it after adding any water to it from a chlorinated system. Okay? Get it running. Put some cheap fish in it or some caught fish in it or something like that, and just take it from there. And, and this is why I'll say that. Let's say that in the, you, you, you like this system, you like what it does, and you want to keep running it. Okay. Um, and in the future, you decide, you know what I would like? I would like two ebb and flow beds. Well, all you got to do is get another 50-gallon tank, stick it on top. That's it. That's it. And if you want to overwinter your fish in that tank, if you do anything insulated at all, you probably can throw a stock tank de-icer in it that will shut off whenever it hits 45 degrees so it won't cook your fish. Shut off your ebb and flow beds and don't use them and just run recirculating water inside the tank and get through winters. Even in very cold climates, you'll probably be able to do that. If not, then you got to think about this a little bit more, right? Is it, Because the other thing is, is this right for you? I don't believe this is the best system in every climate. It depends on the climate that you're in and how you want to do this. If you're going to raise fish through a single season and you're going to take them and harvest them at the end of the season, then just shut them, shut it down at the end of the season. Now, how could we do that with tilapia in your cold climate? Well, what we could do is we could get ourselves a 55-gallon fish tank and put it in a house somewhere and buy our tilapia in, like, the end of September and let them grow up in there as fry and then put them out around May, right? Or maybe you would buy them more like November, late November. You could do that as an approach. Use local fish. Use bluegills and things like that that you can get locally for free. And, and that can mitigate some of this. The other thing is, can you bury it? Because if you bury it, everything gets better. So we, can we dig a hole deep enough to put that, that 50-gallon stock tank in the ground? Generally, water two feet in the ground is pretty easy to keep from freezing solid. Now, if you want you want to keep the top open, we get recirculation and things like that going in. A stock tank de-icer, really not that big of a problem. Um So now let's say you say, you know what, I'm liking this. It's really working out, and I want, to, I want to go bigger. Okay, let's say you say I'm ready to step up the fish tank size. Well, we could take another 100-gallon tank, put it on the same level as the first one, plumb them together, and you're golden. Okay, or we could say, you know what, I want to go to a 300-gallon tank, like the system I'm about to build next. Go out and get a 300-gallon tank. And you say I want to have two deep wicking beds and two ebb and flow beds. Okay, fine. Take the water out of the 100-gallon tank, put it in the 300-gallon tank. Net the fish, put them in the 300-gallon tank. That 100-gallon tank becomes a deep wicking bed. Go buy another one. It becomes a deep wicking bed. Now take the, the, buy one more 50-gallon. You got an existing 50-gallon ebb and flow bed. Now you've got two wicking and two ebb and flow. And, and this is the important part, I think, for people to understand about this. Even with a relatively small pump, these systems are extremely expandable. 
You know, they're, they're extremely expandable. And you, you really won't understand their productivity until you actually see one in action. And once you do, you'll start to understand how amazing these systems really are and how much good they do. But if you can't fit the two to three hundred dollar budget to do what I said, I have no problem with you finding any container that'll make a fish tank, going out and getting yourself a a twelve dollar twenty one gallon uh, mixing tray from Home Depot or Lowe's, build a plywood platform for it to sit on so it doesn't deform on you the way a lot of mine have, make that an ebb and flow bed, put it over anything, and just give it a try. I think the important thing here is to be able to figure out, like, how am I going to get power to it? Uh, where do I want it? What's it going to look like? How do I make it work? And I think it's one of those things that you don't really get until you do it. So you, if you do it on any level, that's fine with me. I've seen people set up an IBC and a whole bunch of Dutch buckets, and that's all they do, and it works great. I've seen people kind of combine aquaponics with, like, the rain gutter grow type system where they just set up a rain gutter grow system somewhere, Well, float valve and the aquaponics system simply allows water to refill it from time to time with a float valve, and then we have to top off the, aqu- the, the, the aquaponics tank once in a while. You, you can do this any way that you want. Don't let it intimidate you, and don't let naysayers just say it's not really healthy or regenerative or good for the environment, because most of those people don't understand it. Even people that are really smart about other things tend, to, from what I've seen, and I'm having discussions on Facebook right now about this, do not understand it. Well, it's plastic. Plastic's horrible. D- didn't you just type that on a plastic computer keyboard? How much plastic's in your house? Right. By the way, we had the water tested out of our aquaponic system straight out of it. It's better for better than what most people are drinking as far as things like contaminants in it. So I, I don't know what these people are talking about. There's, there's biological systems create buffers. And I think the most important thing to understand about an aquaponic system is what you're building is a biological-based system. That's why I can show you water that comes out of my systems that have no actual filters in them at all that have been running for that one system has been running for five years, and that water's crystal clear because biology creates buffers, and, and that's what we're after here is biology. I hope that helps you. By the way, I did a, a presentation up in New Hampshire for the Free State Project. I have a screen capture video of it that I'm going to probably put on YouTube later this week that'll help with a lot of these parts, pieces, components, things, and and maybe that'll be the video that you're looking for. But, you know, I hesitate to even send you one of my videos really as, like, the source because I think you should figure out what's available to you, what makes sense for you, and how you can adapt that and then say, okay, well, I need a bell siphon. Just find out how to build a bell siphon and then put that in there. And, and you will screw shit up. I messed up, like, I talk about this stuff like I got it down now, and I do, But yeah, I had a lot of broken pipes before I figured out the smart way to drain my systems. I had a lot of things freeze up before I figured out the smart way to drain my systems. I had systems where the pump went down and a bunch of fish died before I figured out how to put redundancy in my systems. It's okay. It's okay. You start taking the right steps. You start thinking ahead. You start paying attention to videos like me, like Rob Bob. That's another great guy to check out is Rob Bob. And you'll start to realize that these systems have a a tremendous potential for redundancy to be built into them. Anyway, I'll put a link to the videos I put out today uh, on this. I'll put a link to the playlist for the Winter Project. And remember, just throw away the light and use the steps in that. And I'll put a link to Rob Bob's channel because I think he's one of the best guys in aquaponics available online today. Okay, so next up I have a uh, question here from Alex in Canada. And Alex says, home self-defense with no firearms. 
I live in Canada where self-defense with a firearm is highly frowned upon, usually as a prosecution, even in clear-cut cases. Can you talk about how to defend your family, home, and self when a firearm is not available? Good question, Alex. And what I want to say is a lot of this stuff's going to apply whether or not you can have a gun, right? And the reason for that is the last thing I want to ever have to do is kill somebody. I don't care if it's with a gun. I don't care if it's by accident with a car. I don't want to have to live with the burden of knowing I took another human being's life if there was any way to avoid it. That said, if you're here and I think you are a legitimate threat to my personal safety, you're going to get a hole, probably .45 caliber, in your freaking head. If I think you are a threat to the safety and life of my wife, you're dead. I will carry that burden because her life is more important to me than either the person that was the threat's life or my burden. And my, my desire not to have that burden. My life, so that I can be a good father to my son and grandfather to my grandkids and husband to my wife, that's more important to me than that burden or your life if you have put yourself in a position to be that threat. But that's, that's the threshold that I have for that because I don't want to do that. Hence, we try to do things to make it unlikely that we're going to have to worry about ever having to do that. One is we have a bunch of dogs. And yet we have one that will go Tasmanian devil on you and eat your arm off. That's, that's fact of life. We had a, I had a friend here doing a security class and he was talking about, he, he's kind of a little over the top in my opinion. Some of you might know him by the name Brian. Um, and, uh, he was talking about my front door and since my front door has a window, he's like, I could knock that window out, stick my arm in there and unlock that door. And every single person in that class just looked at each other like, I, 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 I no, I'm not going to do, because if you did, you'd have a pit bull just tearing your arm off at the elbow. Before you got before you got the door unlocked, and if you got the door unlocked, you'd have a bigger problem, right? Uh, people say, "Well, they could just shoot the dog," and that's true. Criminals can just shoot the dog, but now the dog made noise, the gun made noise. Everything's more complicated if there's a dog around. One, two, three little yappy yip yappy yip 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 yip, yip dogs are still a deterrent. So dogs, I think, are a huge advantage. Uh, number two, don't look like a target. Don't let just basic op operational security, right? Don't leave doors open when they shouldn't be. Uh, I think a perimeter fence, if you can afford it or if it fits into your lifestyle, is a huge thing. People w can walk right up to the front door of a house and claim, well, I didn't see the no soliciting sign or whatever until I got here. People walking up to doorsteps in neighborhoods is really common and in many times benign and doesn't have any, you know, consequences. And a no trespassing sign, a lot of time will be ignored that because, well, I was out selling papers or I was asking directions or whatever. You put up a fence with a gate that says no trespassing and things change. Also, those dogs I talked about, it is people say, how are your dogs like this? They have a perimeter fence. The minute they have a perimeter fence, everything changes in the dog's mind. You're out there, therefore you don't belong in here, therefore you're not allowed unless you come in the way that you're supposed to come in. And if you don't know what that is, too bad for you. Plus, now it has that kind of thing going on to it. So perimeter fencing, I think, is a huge thing. Um, again, don't leave garage doors open, things like that. Most burglars that are like the cat burglar type that want to steal your shit, they actually hit in the middle of the day when people are home. Number one way that they do that, they wait for people to get home. Then the door's unlocked because a lot of people don't lock the door when they get home. Okay? No, door's not locked. So they watch what's going on. They case the place. Mom comes home. She goes there, and they figured out where mom goes. And they slip in the door that's unlocked, and they head right to the master bedroom. Now, this is not the guy that wants to rape mom. This is the guy that wants to steal your shit. Why? Well, all the good shit's in the master bedroom. So what's he do when he gets to the master bedroom? 
closes the door very quietly, and he locks it. And he starts going through shit, looking for gold, money, jewelry, etc. And all the best stuff's always in the master bedroom. At least, usually it's in the master bedroom. They play the odds. You find the shit you want, you open the window, you go out the window, and you're gone. What happens if they figure out the door's locked? Mom and the kids or mom and dad get into an argument about who locked the door, which alerts you and you're out the door. So lock the friggin' doors. Alarms, I think, are great. They're more a deterrent than a reality because there's a long time between the alarm going off and somebody getting there to help you, but the alarms. Signs about the alarms, security cameras. Both for the purpose of actually gathering intelligence, but visible security cameras. What you want to do is you want to make your property look less inviting. That dude's got alarm system, he's got security cameras, he's got a dog, all his shit's locked up tight. I don't want it. Because right next door is an easier target. And I kind of hate that for the person that gets picked instead, but they're going to pick somebody and it ain't going to be me if I can have any. Because again, I don't want to shoot you. Now, the person does invade and you do have to defend yourself. Let me say, if under Canadian law you can use a firearm, you have a firearm in your possession, having the ability to go to it, I would rather defend myself in a court of law, even a shitty one like a Canadian court of law over this issue, than be dead on a slab. So if it comes down to it, and, and I need to kill you to prevent you from killing me or my family, I don't give a shit if I'm going to sit in prison for the rest of my life. You're not killing me and you're not killing my family and you're going to die. If I have to blow a hole in your chest with a shotgun the size of a basketball because you chose to come into my house... I'll fight that battle because at least I can. Okay? I mean, seriously. So that is still the final answer. But there's a lot of other things you can do. Pepper spray or, honest to God, wasp spray. You have to be careful with this because they can make a case against you. But again, I, I just care about surviving. Velcro a can of wasp spray up under the, like the, if you have like a table like in your receiving area, your vestibule area, like most people do, for like keys and stuff like that, take, take a, a can of wasp and hornet spray. Put a strip of Velcro on it. Put a strip of Velcro there and stick it up under there. Hit somebody in the eyes with that. I'm telling you, it's chrysanthemums is what they make it out of. And it will burn the shit out of you. You know, And that a blind person is less likely to be able to effectively fight you than one that can see. Pepper spray works good for that, too. The wasp spray is cheap. It has a good 12-foot range. And, uh, I mean, again, the thing is it's not supposed to be used like that. There's actually a little label that you're not supposed to do that with it. But, hey, you know, it, it works. Um, I know this is going to sound stupid, but a fully automatic airsoft gun. You know what I'm talking about? Like an AEG or a gas blowback airsoft gun? I have a gas blowback airsoft gun with a 40-round magazine. Now, I promise you, if you hit somebody in the face coming through a door with those 40 shots in about the five seconds it takes for them to come off, they're going to not see. They're not going to see. And what can't see is easier to fight. Because I'm, I'm talking eyeballs and raking them here. Don't break in my house. Again, though, the problem with that is it looks like a gun. It actually gives them justifiable uh, defense that they were killed. When they killed you, they thought they were defending their own life, even though they shouldn't have been breaking in. And with your weird-ass laws, that could work. But at, at some point, you got to figure out what works. Friggin' baseball bat works. A samurai sword works. But I, I think that you, the, the problem with countries like Canada and more so the U.K., it doesn't matter what you use. There's an old man over in the UK right now facing spending the rest of what's left of his life in prison because he stabbed a guy to death that broke into his house to try to rape his, his daughter or his granddaughter or something like that. And the guy broke in his house and the guy took a kitchen knife and stabbed him to death with it and they're prosecuting him. 
So this is a systemic problem with, with your, your country, right? Um, but in the end, when it comes down to it, if I have the choice between trying to defend myself in even a tilted court system or dying or watching my wife killed in front of me, then I'm going to take the, the first option. I am, I'm going to defend myself in that situation. And so I think we need to think about stacking those things in order. But again, dogs, fences, locks, alarm systems, security cameras. I don't care if the alarm is, 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 is fake signs and the cameras are fake cameras. They're, they're more useful that way anyway. The cameras are useful after the fact because you have proof of what happened. But, but the, the, the main thing they are is a deterrent. There is no security system that can keep a person from breaking into a place. But there's plenty of security that can make a person just say, this is not worth it. So that's the approach I think that we need to take. Okay, next question comes in from Aaron. Aaron says, what would your recommendation be for a .22 caliber pistol that could be used for self-defense? I'm a newbie to guns, so excuse me if my eye is dumb, but here it is. I recently purchased a Weatherby Vanguard Synthetic 3006 you recommended in your segment on a great rifle under a grand. I'm absolutely loving the gun and can't wait to take it hunting. However, I'm quickly realizing how expensive ammo can get for practice, so I was thinking of getting the same gun but chambered for .22 caliber so I can use significantly cheaper ammo to practice and have for when the kids get old enough to start learning. I'm also now feeling the itch to get a pistol and thinking a .22 would be preferred since I keep one set of ammo for the rifle and the pistol and get lots of practice without breaking the bank. I realize many people don't think a .22 is effective for self-defense, but I personally think just pointing a gun at somebody would be intimidating on its own and that with a .22 you would be able to squeeze off several rounds pretty quickly without any real recoil to worry about. Would love to hear your thoughts on the pistol as well as a general idea of keeping two identical rifles but with two different calibers. Thanks, Aaron. Okay, the two identical rifles, and I, I don't know that Weatherby makes an exact replica of the of the Vanguard in a .22 long rifle, but you know a .22 bolt action is a .22 bolt action, and they're going to function very similarly. If you put similar magnification glass on them, they're going to have a very similar um, view. Uh, though I, I might spend more money on the glass for a 30.06 than for a 22 personally, but you, you get the point. So I, I love that. And, and I, I recommend that you, for your self-defense, take a similar approach. I would want a 22 caliber handgun that basically has the same place for a release of magazine, a safety decocking if you have that, what have you, as your carry handgun. And everything you said is almost, almost everything you said there is really wrong, Aaron. And I, I don't mean to pick on you. First of all, let's talk about, is a 22 a lethal round in a handgun or otherwise? The answer is yes. It probably kills more people in the United States every year than any very other round. I don't know if it still does because there's a huge proliferation of 9mm, etc. like that among gangbangers, but... Uh, up until not so long ago, it was the most common round to kill a person in the United States, despite all the horrific warnings about, you know, uh, explosive incendiary armor piercing AR 15 rounds that can cause a nuclear cloud to detonate over a school and kill a million children. Uh, the, the, the number one round that actually kills people is a 22. And a 22 is extremely lethal for a reason people don't think about, and that is its ability to penetrate without expanding very, very deeply. 
It makes a good hole is another way to look at it. Yes, if it hits a bone, it can be deflected, it can flatten out, etc. But if it hits somebody in the chest, especially between the ribs, it is probably going to go right through a lung uh, and, and end up somewhere near the far side of the victim without exiting. Or it might even come out, because it is a very good penetrator, depending on what it hits. And it will cause internal hemorrhage, and it, you know, when it hits a lung, you're talking about some, the lung will eventually collapse, and without immediate medical treatment, uh, that person will die. You can see this. This is exactly what happened to President Reagan uh, when he was shot with a .22 in the chest. They didn't even know he was shot. And they were like, oh, well, you know, he's going to be fine. He must have broke a rib when the Secret Service guy pushed him down. Then they realized he'd been shot, but he seemed okay. So next thing you know, he is at the edge of life and death, and if not for the hands of a competent surgeon, would have died. Okay. But here's the problem with all of everything I just said. Well, if it's that lethal, then why? Okay, because if you pull a handgun on somebody, okay, and shoot them, that means your life is imminently in danger. And it's not, does the shot kill them? It does, does the shot stop them? Does the shot stop them? And on one shot stop, the 22 and all the studies done is abysmal in its performance. The other side of it, so is every other handgun around. So is every other handgun around. Seriously. They're all abysmal in stopping the attack. That's why we fire more than one shot. However, they're not as abysmal as the 22. And there's a case for knowing your weapon and knowing what to do. You know? And so, what's the situation, etc. As for brandishing, is what you're talking about. Just showing the gun should de-escalate the conflict. I'm not going to say there's not times for that. I am saying that in general, it's probably not a good idea. Though at times it can be. We're in an altercation. You brandish a gun at me. If I have means to use lethal force, you just gave me... A, a, a defendable reason for using lethal force, even if I was the initial aggressor. He pulled a gun on me. I thought he was going to kill me. And then after I kill you, I get to tell my side of the story and you don't. You don't get to explain how I was threatening to push you into your car and take you prisoner. Right? Or whatever it is. All I, I, I was walking through here. The guy pulled a gun. I shot him. Because the, the guy that will do all the other criminal activity, yeah, he'll lie to the police. Just saying. So, brandishing is kind of that last step. And the minute you draw a gun, you've created a lethal situation. And we shouldn't be drawing until we're willing to, to actually shoot. Though, I, again, I, can, I have seen times where just the presence of the gun has de-escalated the, the, the conflict. We just have to be real clear about what we're doing there. Um, so, there, there is that. Uh, if you gave me a choice, yeah, I can carry a 22 or you can't carry it all. I'll carry the 22. It's, it's damn better than a sharp stick. It, it, it absolutely is. And then it, it's back to knowing what you're doing and knowing when to do it and knowing how to do it. But I would prefer to carry something along the lines of the 9mm, 40 Smith and Wesson, 45 APC. Those are like my top carry rounds and I'm really fond of the 45 APC. I've also become very, very fond of the 357 SIG. Uh, so, like, all of those are rounds to look into and then look for the 22 that matches it. I do have a Walther P22. It is a very reliable gun. One of the problems I have with 22 semi-autos is they tend to not be reliable. They tend to have jams, malfunctions, etc. That's the last thing that I want. The P22, I've put a thousand rounds through it. I've had one malfunction. That's as good as any Glock. 
Really, I mean, and, and I've I've run the shit out of it without cleaning it too, just to see what it would do. Um, so that's that's one. I am not exactly in love with how the safety is from a standpoint as a self defense gun, how that works. But with training and practice, you would be able to to deploy it quite reasonably well. And also, you know, one thing about the twenty two is they carry beautifully because they're all small guns. Beretta makes a twenty uh, two called the twenty one A Bobcat that I've also shot and found to be very reliable. This is where my experience ends. Since I'm not a huge fan of compact 22s for self-defense, I haven't shot a lot of them. So I'm not, And I'm not willing to take somebody else's word on reliability in something like a 22. If you're going to go with a 22, then I say you do put a bunch of different rounds through it uh, and, and find the stuff that it functions best with, and that's good advice anyway, and, and, and then go with that and don't cheap out. But when you talk about practicing inexpensively, Like, you're not going to do that much handgun practicing. You, you, you're probably not. And if you are, then you buy the, you do exactly what you're doing with your rifle. You're not going to be like, Jack, you know, since it's so expensive to buy 3006, I really want to sell my Vanguard, try to get my money back out of it, and use a 22 to hunt deer with. You see what I'm saying? Right? What you've done there is what you should do with your handgun if you want to bring 22 to the, to the table. And there's a lot of kits, too, where you can do Glock or 1911s, and you can save money by buying a slide and, and, and basically converting your carry gun to 22, train with it with that, and then convert it back to your carry caliber of choice. And again, the, the, the calibers I would look to, 9mm, 40 Smith & Wesson, 357 SIG, 45 APC in semi-autos. If we're going to go into revolvers, I am a huge fan of the 357 Magnum. Uh, I'm also a massive fan of the 41 and 44 Magnums, but I think there's not a lot of guns that will carry well for you in those cartridges. Um, and then let train about you know get off a lot of rounds without recoil. Being. Listen, if you train, none of these rounds are you know going to actually prevent you from making multiple shots and doing that well. They're, they're really not. So I, I'm just not going to advise the 22 as a self-defense handgun. I think it's got too many problems with the chief among them being, even with absolutely spot-on hits, they are less likely than more traditional self-defense rounds to incapacitate the attacker to the point where you can avoid being harmed yourself. It's not the eventual death that I'm worried about. I... I I know legally I'm better off if the guy dies, because there's one story then. I know that. Morally, I still would prefer that even if the guy is a piece of shit, you know, unless he was going to go kill somebody else tomorrow or something like that, I would prefer that he's, he's injured sufficiently to stop the attack so that he can be taken away and, and put into the justice system. I, I, you know, even though I don't have a lot of faith in the justice system, I didn't have to kill, then I don't want to. So it's not that I want the guy dead. I want the attack to stop. If that results in his death, sorry, you should you pick the wrong guy. You pick the wrong house, the wrong guy, the wrong day, the wrong car, whatever it is. You pick the wrong person to attack in front of the wrong guy. Whatever it is, you shouldn't have done that, right? And and I'm and I'm okay with the eventuality of that as long as there was every other opportunity afforded for it not to happen without risking my own life or the life of someone else that was innocent. When you use a .22, you're risking your own life, even if you kill the person. That's my opinion. I believe statistics bear that out, and mathematics bear that out. 
Uh, let's take another one. So next up is a question from Steve. It's pretty simple. And Steve says, can you tell me how to read hardiness zones? I get when it says four to nine, but what about when it just has one number such as five? Does that mean the plant will only grow in five or that five is the coldest it can grow in and it can grow almost anywhere warmer? Thanks, Steve. The answer is yes. It means that the plant has a minimum uh, zone of that number. I, I don't see that happen very often, but I don't personally know of any plant that would be limited to a single USDA zone based on temperature. And that's what the USDA zone hardiness is based on. How, how cold does it get and for how long? And the, 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 the longer and the colder, the lower the number. So, you know, something like a zone three is a brutally cold winter. And something like a zone eight is a relatively mild winter, but we'll still have freezing events. Uh, in fact, you know, heavy freezing events down into the 20s or teens. You just don't stare that many days out of the year. And what makes this misleading for a lot of people is, well, zone eight, so you got a really long growing season. Yeah, kind of, but, you know, all it takes is one frost in, in April, and April's gone. And if your first frost was in November, your growing season doesn't look much different in between, fro you know, first and last frost dates as places like Virginia and Pennsylvania. And you have a much harsher summer to deal with at the same time. So the zone stuff can be misleading. And the reason I brought that up is I want to talk about one of the ways it can be misleading. So my wife will often find a plant in a catalog and go, oh, look, we can grow this here because it goes you know, from zone 7 to zone 10, and we're in zone 8, so it'll work. Yeah, honey, that plant hates alkaline soils. So we're going to have to create an artificial environment if you want to grow that. I'm not saying we can't do it, but if it's a big tree... Um, and it, it's just not going to survive in our soil type. Or another instance would be, well, here's the zones it will survive in, but will it produce if it's a fruit tree? So I've been growing pineapple guavas, uh, also known as fajoas, uh, for about four years now, and it is true that they have survived. They've had the leaves knocked off on them, they've come back and what have you, but they have not produced a single pineapple guava. Maybe someday they will. And maybe they'll get hardened enough that they will. But the reason why is actually kind of surprising. It's because our summers are too hot for them. They, so there, there's, there's always the question of, well, will it survive? If you look at something like a red delicious apple, a red delicious apple tree will survive here. It did for three seasons before it got blight on it. I went ahead and cut it down. But it never really produced much because it, was, it never got enough chill. So it was going to bloom sometimes in December when there was nothing to cross-pollinate with. So it was out of the zone for production, even though it was in the zone for survivability. Some plants like very mild summers, uh, but there's places with a zone 8 that are a mild summer, like certain parts of Washington State are actually zone 7, zone 8. Uh, but they have very mild summers and lots of moisture. Some plants have high moisture requirements. So the, the answer, the simple answer is yes. When, when a plant just specifies you know, like zone 5, they mean zone 5 and above. But you have to look, do a little bit more research on the plant to determine whether or not it's actually suitable for the totality of your situation, if that makes sense. Next one is from Corey. He says, Jack, what should be done to prevent squirrels from stealing all of my fruit this year? The little bastards ate all my peaches, apples, and pears last year, and I'm still mad about it. I used a bird net in the past to wrap the entire tree, but that's a pain in the ass. If it's at all possible, I'd like a different solution. I shoot them when I see them because I like free food, but I'm not sitting at home all day, and they know it. I bought six number 10 conibear traps, but I've yet to deploy them. 
deploy them. They might be my best option, but I wanted your thoughts. Thanks, Jack. Corey. One thing on a conibear trap, always remember a conibear trap is a, is a killing trap, and that means it kills the squirrel, the little bastard squirrel that eats your peaches. It also kills the neighbor's cat. So you have to think, if you're going to use a conibear trap, You really have to think about where you're setting that trap. And for a killing trap for squirrels, I prefer to get up into the tree in a place that only they can get to and cats and stuff like that can't, dogs, etc. You don't want a dog wearing one of these things on her nose or something. Um, and uh, using a rat trap. Because it's big enough to kill a squirrel, but it's probably not going to kill a cat even if it figures out how to get in it. right? Um, so that's my preferred killing trap for squirrels. And uh, I, I think I've told the story before, but I found these big old oak, you know, they used to make rat traps out of oak base. It was oak, wood, heavy steel rat traps, damn near like a small conibear, bear, and they had a bunch of holes in them. And I asked my grandfather what the holes were for. He says, damn squirrel traps. We used to take them and screw them to the tree and put peanut butter on them and catch squirrels. So uh, that does work. I've never, uh, I've never actually done it myself, but I know that it does work, and it's kind of there in the back world for me if I ever had to. Um, shooting them, I'm totally down with uh, turning squirrels into, into food. Uh, know your local game laws. There are some places where you can pretty much shoot squirrels whenever you want to, as many as you want to, as often as you want to. There are some places where they're a game animal and they have very strict seasons like any other game animal. There's some places where they're a game animal for hunting, but for shooting on your own property, it's a different world. Know your own laws. So at least if you're breaking the law, you know it and you can take, you know, proper uh, steps to you know protect yourself, I would just say. Um, not that I'm advising you to break the law. I'm just saying if you're going to do it, you should know that's what you're doing because ignorance will not help you. All right? Saying you didn't know usually won't help you anyway. Um, from a standpoint of preventing them from getting your trees, assuming there's no other things, like if it's really close to a fence and they can jump off a fence, that's kind of a real problem, and you need to be thinking about where you plant trees if you're going to account for this long term. But assuming they don't have another place they can leap from, if you have fruit trees that are kind of spaced out, or the whole clump is fruit trees, or you can do this with the trees that aren't, putting a cone around the tree... And they make them for like bird feeders, and if they fit around a smaller tree, fine. But you can use something like sheet metal and basically girdle a tree with sheet metal uh, as a cone, or even just straight up as, as long as you do it in a, a wide enough swath, you can just basically put sheet metal around a tree. And they can't, they can't get a grip on that, and therefore they can't get up the tree. The problem is we usually train our fruit trees fairly low canopy because we get more productivity earlier with them, and they may be able to jump anyway, but that's another thing you can look at. Live catch traps are another great option because if we get the neighbor's cat, we can let the neighbor's cat go, right? And we don't want to kill the neighbor's cat because it's, it's a bad thing to do in the first place, but I really want people to think about when you, the willingness to shoot or kill or harm uh, a pet is that in many instances there's, there's a child attached to that pet. Please think about that, and you make decisions about how we protect our property from, you know, neighbors, animals, and things like that. There's ways to do it with. That's a different answer altogether. But there's ways to do it without killing them, and, and you know, again, that should be a just a last resort, right? Um, man, there's a guy that shot a neighbor's dog in the ass and claimed she was coming at him, yet she he shot her in the ass, going away with a shotgun, and it was damn near a lynch mob in the the particular neighborhood when people found out about it. You, you don't want to be that guy. Um, my problem with squirrels in my history with them, with fruit trees, is they'll do shit like they find a peach tree, and they they seem to find the peaches like two days before we're ready to pick. 
They pull a peach off, they take like two bites, and they throw it on the ground, and they do it again, and they do it again, and they do it again. And you go out, and there's 20 peaches, not quite ripe, all squirrel-bitten laying on the ground. If that happens, I just want to point out, it'll still probably make pretty good peach mead or peach brandy. Just saying. Um, planting lots and lots of trees. Then the squirrels take a little here and a little there. You're not as concerned. Um, but, you know, you have a limit to how many you can plant. Dog is the number one answer I have for you. It's the joke. Every dog's squirrel. What? Where? Squirrel. What? Okay. So if we if we have a dog that can stay outside in a fenced area while we're at work and we can't pellet the squirrels, we're probably not going to have much of a squirrel problem. Now, not every dog is good at this, but in, in general, I think deer and squirrels both. If we can perimeter fence something and put the thing that we want to prevent from the squirrel or the deer, or the deer and we put a dog in there, we're probably not going to have a deer or a squirrel problem anymore. And it only takes a little bit of training. See, the, the thing with the canine is all we have to do is tap into the canine brain and find the predisposed behavior that we want and encourage it and take the predisposed behaviors that we don't want and discourage it. So if we have a squirrel in the yard and the dog, you know, grab the dog by the face, assuming you have a dog where you can do this without their own dog biting you, that means you've done other things wrong, and point the dog so he sees the squirrel and say something like, squirrel, get him, get him. Just that, when you lower your, your voice with the canine, because you're the pack leader, right, you're triggering something primal when you get into that, hey, what is that, what is that, that type of thing. Not the, not the, oh, look at that little puppy. Not the baby talk to the dog. I'm talking about, like, like you would say to your buddy, hey, what's that? Right? Oh, you better get him. Things like that. This is how I trained Charlie to know animals that if you see this animal, go get it. And it's amazing. Once you do that one time and he switches on to it, oh. So next thing you know, we have a great blue heron cleaning my fish ponds out. Charlie's the bad bird. He looks at it. Oh, bad bird. Get him. And that's it. Now, that, he's, he's one of the bad birds. He has to be chased away. And we don't have much problem. And so if I was at a point where the fruit's getting pretty close to set and we have to leave the house uh, during the day, I'm probably going to put the dog out for the day while I'm gone. Protects the house like we talked about earlier, but also protects the fruit trees. Because the squirrel will, and a lot of people say, and most dogs are just going to chase the squirrels away, right? <laughs> they get here. If they hit the ground at all, man, they go up in a, a pinwheel of pink spray. Uh, we almost have no squirrels in the yard anymore. I very rarely see a squirrel uh, because they've all been eaten by a pit bull uh, and, his, and his German Shepherd buddy. Uh, Lucy has actually never seen many squirrels here on the property because they were pretty wiped out before he got there. So dogs, to me, are your number one bet. Again, cones or girdling of trees to keep them off of it. And then, you know, another thing we can think about is... If you're worried about squirrels and you're doing any kind of orcharding or things like that, backyard or otherwise, then let's make our clumps with open spaces from the other trees or from the fence or something. Squirrels don't like to go through open areas much. Yeah, in the parks where people are and they've been trying to eat peanuts, sure. But in most air, other areas, they don't like that because the number one thing a squirrel fears is a shadow overhead. Because that shadow overhead is a overhead is a raptor, a bird of prey. And he does not want to end up eaten by a hawk. Neither do I, right? That would suck, a giant hawk that eats people. And so when they have to cross open areas, 
they're generally not real happy about that. And if you ever watch a squirrel that is baited in enough to cross an open field, they're very leery about it. You'll see them kind of come out and look around. Sometimes they'll come out two or three feet from an edge. They look around and go back in like, hey, and they're trying to bait out. Is there any predator out here? They'll come a little further. They'll stop. They look around, right? So they're on edge at that point. So if we create that environment, right, then we're creating an environment where our dog is more likely to be able to notice him and chase him away, and eventually the squirrel will just decide it's not worth it because I don't want to end up in a canine's belly or in a hawk's talons. Um, it's the exact opposite of if you were setting up something to manage for high squirrel populations from a land management standpoint. You would not want to create a park-like environment in your woods. You would want a lot of understory, and you would want a lot of canopy and stuff like that so that they can move around without being seen. So we do the opposite thing. We deter them. Uh, you'll notice that most orchards, even in areas where there's lots of squirrels, don't have a big squirrel problem because they're out open in lanes and stuff like that. With permaculture, we don't want to completely mimic that, but we can use that in a clumping-like architecture to create some open spaces to make the squirrels more vulnerable to predators. And keep shooting them. Keep shooting them. I think one of the best things that people need to understand about squirrels is a, is a, 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 a problem in your system. Don't only shoot them. When they're doing something you don't want them to do. They're not a dog. You're not trying to train them. Right? So, you know, most people that would shoot the squirrel when it's eating the peach off a street, you know, when they see the squirrel in January, they don't shoot, shoot them if it's legal and if it's really a problem. You know, or they see the squirrel in, in, in like, you know, September and they've already picked everything and they're not bothered. Well, I'm not going to shoot him. No, he's Brunswick stew, baby. He's got to go. Uh, that's, that's, that's the best I can do for you on that. Anybody with any other ways you foiled squirrels from eating all your fruit, let us know, and we will uh, pass that along to other listeners in the audience. You can do that by email or in today's show notes on the blog down in the comments section. Well, we've been highly ag-centric, so let's do something a little bit economic today um, with a story that comes to me from, let's see, who did this come from? John. John says, here we go for another spin of the wheel. From the Wall Street Journal, rising home prices put borrowers deeper in debt. Let me read a little of this article to you. More Americans are stretching to buy homes. The latest sign that rising prices are making home ownership more difficult for a broad swath of potential buyers. Roughly one in five conventional mortgage loans has made this winter, uh, made this winter went to borrowers spending more than 45% of their monthly incomes on their mortgage payment and other debts, the highest proportion since the housing crisis, according to new data from the mortgage data tracker CoreLogic, Inc., that was almost triple the proportion of such loans made in 2016 or the first half of 2017, CoreLogic said. Economists said rising debt levels are a symptom of a market in which home prices are rising sharply in relation to incomes driven in part by historic lack of supply that is forcing prices higher. Real estate agents worry that buyers' weariness from being priced out of the market could make this one of the weakest spring selling seasons in recent years. Consumers are growing more optimistic about the economy and their personal financial prospects, but most hopeful now is the right time to buy a home, according to the results of a survey released in March by the National Association of Realtors. At the same time, the average rate for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage has risen to 4.4% 4 
as of the last week from 3.9% at the beginning of the year, according to Freddie Mac, putting still more pressure on affordability. These factors are working against affordability, and that's why you get the pressure to ease credit standards, said Doug Duncan, chief economist Fannie Mae. Uh, you can read the rest of the article if you want. It's quite long. But, you know, who could have ever foreseen the fact that we would end up with a real estate boom and overpriced real estate yet again so soon after the complete collapse of everything in 2008, 2009, and 2010? Who could have ever foreseen this? Uh, the redneck hippie duck farmer from Texas. That's who. Me. And I said this all the way back in 2008, 2009. This is a great time over the next couple of years to buy real estate. As an investor, because the market has been pushed down so low, but it won't be a typical recovery. We return back to the way things were, that we would have a major run-up in real estate prices because construction went to nothing during the last crisis. It went to shit. People just didn't build new houses. Builders went out of business. Builders downsized. Builders that were production builders went into custom building. So they built a house for a person. They stopped doing developments and then selling the houses. And I mean, I saw this go on like crazy here because the building boom that went on from the mid-90s to the early 2000s here in Texas was something like you've probably never seen in your life if, you, if you're not from here. I mean, when you went out on a weekend, they were not allowed to put up signs permanently. These little signs that people drove around with trailers and they stuffed them in the ground. And there were guys that were making a, a good living just putting signs out because they had to go out and they could go out for like Friday evening and they had to be picked up like Sunday evening or you'd get a fine. And you would drive down a road and there would be literally, like it looked like campaign season with politician signs. Hundreds of signs, this development, that development, starting at 89.95, you know, whatever, uh, 89.95, whatever, like that, you know, everywhere. Get a three-bedroom for less than rent. I mean, it was all over the place. And just boom. Close down. Now, here's where people are really going to get hurt this time around. And I, I'm telling you that we are not far away from another major crash of the real estate market. I, 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 I don't like this. I'm not happy about it. And it won't be everywhere the same. Just like last time, it was much worse in places like Arizona and Florida. The Florida market was driven by, hey, coastal real estate is awesome, and it is. And the Arizona market was dr uh, driven mainly by Phoenix's economy rocked ass through the 90s and early 2000s. And they grew so fast that when the growth stopped, any decline resulted in crashing prices of property. Guess who's going to be square ass in the middle of the next one? Your your buddy Jack's backyard, Dallas Fort Worth. The, the 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 level. The only thing helping us is that the median price of like let's say a three bedroom two bath home in Dallas Fort Worth is still lower than most places in the United States. But it is so far above where it used to be, and so far above where it, where it is for Texas elsewhere that it's gonna hurt. It's gonna suck. And. All I can say is I hope the people that are in their houses that bought, including my son, who I tried to explain this to, uh, but they were excited and wanted their first home, don't have any plans to move in the next five to ten years. If you're not moving, it doesn't matter. If you can afford it, it doesn't matter. But being able to sell is critical to being able to move. Now, here's where it gets worse. When people lose the ability to sell and then move up in-house, They stop buying, and this hurts the overall buying, and it becomes a precipitous cliff. It's like the, the, the old gag with Homer Simpson on the skateboard where he's going to try to make the jump, 
on the skateboard to prove the bar, you know, that he shouldn't do it. And he thinks he's going to make it. And also he starts rolling down the hill and bam, 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 bam. And every time you think it can't get worse, crack, crash, boom, bang. That's what we're headed for. Because we have to be. Because you are never going to see wages rise fast enough to catch up with what's happened to real estate prices. This is fueled by this idiocy in our society that we want our houses to go up in value. I don't want my house to go up in value. A little bit, sure, but I don't want it to go up massively in value. What does that do for me? Number one, it results in the, in the city and the county being able to reassess the value of my home and charge me more to live in my own home in the form of theft. Oh, I meant taxes. Okay, So that, my real estate value going up sucks. The next thing it does for me is I'm worried about my son, and I'm watching my grandson play baseball with himself right now. Hit the ball, run and get the ball, hit the ball, run away. Right. I am looking at this seven-year-old boy going, is there any way that that boy in his early to mid-20s if he works his ass off and has a decent job of what's available at the time, is going to be able to afford to buy a house. And if my dream is that my house is going to go up in value $20,000 a year, the answer is no. The answer is no, he won't be able to. All of this obsession with property values in our country is insanity. And we don't learn from our mistakes, and we've done the exact thing that they said we wouldn't do when they introduced the HARP program and all that. We are not going to just lend money to people that can't pay it back anymore. They're doing it right now, and they're fueling this acceleration in the market. And the market is, once you've done this, you're trapped. We're trapped right now. We're in the Chinese finger puzzle, right? No matter what you do, it sucks. There's no way, at least the Chinese finger puzzle, you kind of push it and you can get out of it. This is more like the antlion, right? You're stuck in the in the in the little thing, and the antlion's spitting at you. You're going to go down, eventually get eaten. Because the prices were driven by loose lending and low interest rates. So when interest rates go up and lending tightens, you have less buyers. All while the market's already been priced above where it should be, and then the people that have to sell begin to sell for less to get. Because they have to, because they're moving, because they got a job somewhere else, because they lost their job in New Jersey and somebody offered them a job in Philadelphia. So they have to move to Pennsylvania. So they have to sell. Now, if they've been in their house for long enough, it may not directly hurt them. But when they sell their house for 20% less than houses have been selling for in the area, what happens to all the appraisals when 5 or 10 or 15 people do that in a region? Well, all the appraisals drop. So what people can get, and it just starts to cascade. Now, what is the solution to this? Number one, we stop loaning people money to buy a house with no money, no down payment, and we stop doing stupid shit like a 1.5% to 3% down payment through government programs. We stop that. This makes it harder to buy a home at first. But it reduces this massive amount of stupid people that don't know what they're doing just saying, well, it costs less than rent. <laughs> I'll, I don't care. Somebody else will buy it if I have to sell it. Yeah, it stops that. And what that does is it doesn't make the price of housing, it will at first drop. But it drops, it levels, you require a reasonable down payment, you require reasonable reasonable credit. And then what happens is the, ha the pri pri housing prices level and they rise slowly about the rate of inflation, which keeps pace with wages in general and makes things much more stable. And it makes housing much more liquid. To make a profit on a house, you might have to stay in it a lot longer. 
or do significant improvements to it, but the average person's life is better for it. Instead, and the, I'll tell you, why would government fuel this? This has not really been, okay, the buying has been fueled by the federal government with its programs to make lending easy to people that can't afford to, to buy a house in the first place. But the rest of it has been fueled by local governments at the state and the county and city level. Why would they do that? They love rising prices of real estate. It's more money for them in the form of property taxation. So the government gets, a, and you're, you're back to the same old, same old, fascist economics. Government and corporations working together with each other for the benefit of both of them at the expense of the people. That's what you have. And if the banks had to take the full risk of loaning you money, they wouldn't give you a loan with a 3% down payment. And they wouldn't give you a loan when you have a credit score of 570. And you'd have to work harder for longer to earn better credit and put up more money. Because when you walk in with 50% down, they'll give you the loan if your credit is bunkus. Because they know that they're collateralized against the loan in the value of the house. And you're probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% where you're collateralized fairly well. That's why all of a sudden that mortgage insurance premium goes away at 20%. If you can get them to believe you on your new you know, appraised value of the home. It's a pain in the ass, but you can get them to do it. Or if you go on 20% down, they don't ever charge in the first place. Because if we, if you, So if we go to a place where you need 10 to 20% down to buy a house, yes, it'll take you longer to buy your first house, but you'll be able to sell it if you have to. And your kids will be able to afford to buy one. Don't look for it to happen anytime soon. Um, but I'm going to tell you, the next real estate correction is going to hurt worse. It's going to hurt worse. And it might just start with, a, with an admitted popping of the student loan bubble. The student loan bubble has already burst. But the government has propped it up. And unlike a real estate bubble that pops... They don't have to be public about it. There's mechanisms in the background that already make propping it up possible. But even those have failure points. And, and, we're, we're get, and, and the failure point really is the new sucker's money because it's a Ponzi scheme. And as more and more of our kids come out of high school and say, no, I'm not going in $120,000 worth of debt. You understand this is even bigger than the college system. The kid that says, well, I'll go to college, but I'm not taking that much debt on, that hurts their Ponzi scheme. The Ponzi scheme isn't just the money going to the college, it's the money going into the debt wheel. And man, it's... And then you'll see the stock market skid. The stock market's more likely to go into its next major, major correction. Not a 300-point drop in a day, and they all act like a big deal over it, even though it's still up for the last five years by a massive amount. I'm talking about, you know, where you see like a half of the value go down. All this is likely to spiral together. One trips off the other, and it could be the real estate goes first, the education goes first, the stocks go first, but when one goes for real the next time, all three are going to go, and it's going to be bloody. And you're going to go, damn, 2008 was great. You think I'm kidding? It's exactly what I've been foretelling since 2008, that when we got the recovery, that sooner or later the recovery would go so high that the next collapse would make the, the one we were in the middle of when I was talking about this look like a day at Disneyland. I'm not saying it's imminent. I am saying it's coming and design your life according to that reality. And the next one, we'll get through it. It's not going to be Patriots the coming collapse. But it's going to be worse than 2008. I can tell you that. I can tell you that right now. And if something happens and it's not worse than 2008, consider that like the dead cat bounce or something. Something worse is coming. We're wound up way too tight 
It's going to hurt really, really bad when it comes. I'm sorry, I don't have better news for you. And you couple that with the loss of jobs due to automation, and brother, we are in for a hard time. Be ready, be prepared, and you will be able to get through it, and some of you will be able to even profit during it. Last question today comes from Brian. Uh, what recommendations and tips do you have for getting an above-ground pool? Details, my wife and I are looking at getting an above-ground pool. We are looking to spend around eight to $10,000 or cheaper for the pool. Installation and accessories. Is it possible to do that in this price range? And how, buddy? Yes, it is. Eventually, we'd like to add a nice deck and landscape around the pool, but it would be out of the budget for this year. We live on three acres of central Michigan. Our kids are 4, 9, and 12. I would like to be able to use this as an emergency reserve of water if we ever need to use it. This might limit us to the type of pools we look at Though, thoughts on this, and do you have any tips or recommendations as I shop for pools, salt water versus chemical pools? Thanks for all you do. I love the show, Brian. Okay, well, first of all, why is this a, a, a survival topic or a prepper topic? Because 20,000 gallons of extra water on your property is nice to have. All right? So here's my recommendations on an above-ground pool. Number one, go with round. Um, ovals are nice, but they generally cost a hell of a lot more for the same amount of pool. Okay? Number two, buy the best liner they have number three by the best pool that they have and still all in you're probably looking at six thousand dollars or less installed everything for go with resin not metal plastic resin tops on the pool metal sidewalls yes rubber liner uh and you you should be somewhere in the four to six thousand dollar range which gives you some options to do some decking or whatever um <clears throat> That may be different because it just may be more expensive in Michigan. I can't see it being that much more expensive. And shop around. Do not buy from the first person you, you go to. And consider going as big as possible. And so a standard large uh, round pool is 24 feet. That's what we have here. It's 24-foot round. It's very. It's a 22,000-gallon, I think, is the amount of volume in it. I am not fond of doing, like, deep ends and shallow ends with above-ground pools. You know, four feet, four and a half foot of depth, uniform across the way, probably the best way to go. Um, it gives you the most versatility out of your pool, especially if, like, kids want to play and all. Volleyball works a lot better that way because somebody always gets screwed, stuck with the deep end. We went to a 27-foot round pool in Arlington uh, when we did our pool there. It was a lot bigger. Three feet across the entire circumference is huge. If you can go bigger, if you have the, it's in the budget, I think the 27-foot pool was the one we were the most happy with. It just didn't really work here. That's why we didn't go with it again here. Uh, so, again, biggest you can afford, resin and the widest resin rails, the heaviest-duty best resin rails you can get and the best liner you can get, and you should still be in a $6,000 range. I think we paid $5,200 or $5,400 for the pool we have now. I think we have almost as much or more in the decking. The decking can get expensive if you have somebody else do it. Next up, I would really recommend, if you're in Michigan, you probably have good, easy-to-dig dirt. You can generally put an above-ground pool about 50% in the ground. Look for guidance from whoever you buy it from and what they'll warranty and what they won't. What if you can put it in the ground, put it in the ground. This is easy excavation. It can be done by a bobcat. It's probably $500 worth of excavation. It is so worth it because it makes entrance and exit of the pool easier. It makes everything you do with decking less expensive and look better. And if I could have done it here, I would have done it. And a lot of times people say, well, the whole reason I'm doing above ground is to save money over in ground. The, the cost of the in ground pool is not digging the hole. 
It's the gunite. It's the steel reinforcements, all that stuff. You dig the hole, you put the pool in it, push dirt back up and around it, spread it out, and you're done. And again, a 50% drop into the ground is really doable and really looks good, and it also helps with stability of your temperatures during the coldest part of the year in Michigan. Uh, so those are the, the, the tips that I would give you. I don't see any problem with the budget. If you start shopping and you just can't find anything you know, below your budget, uh, meeting the criteria I gave you, email me and let me know what's going on because I've bought a lot of pools, and you know we always say the price of everything goes up. They've remained remarkably stable. They've remained remarkably stable, in my opinion, within like 10% over all of the pools that we've installed. And we've had above-ground pools, one, two, three, four. We've done four of them. I did do an oval pool in, our, uh, in my first house in Arlington, and I did that due to the size of the yard. You have acreage, so it shouldn't be an issue. Uh, do think about things like uh, get how far from electricity, And convenience, like a lot of times people with larger acreage put their pool way out. Try to bring it closer to the home. It'll make it a lot more usable. Think about a walkway so it's comfortable to go back and forth. And then really ask yourself if you want to do this. I mean, my issue with the pool there is you probably get two to three months of use out of a year. Uh, this has been remarkably cold this year. We're usually swimming by now. I ain't going in there, but you know what? I went out and I sweat my ass off just moving some sprinklers around uh, a break I took in between recording here. So if we get a couple weeks like we have right now, I'll be swimming in a couple weeks. Actually, I'll be in Tennessee in a couple weeks, but I would be swimming. And we'll swim in November. So really evaluate the expenditure and see if it makes sense. Because I'm thinking, with your acreage and soil type up there, eight to $10,000 would put in a hell of a pond. Now, maybe that's not an option for you, Right? But if it is, you can swim in a pond, and you have a pond. And you can put in a lot bigger pond than a 24- or 27-round pool with you know eight to $10,000 worth of excavating. And you can probably afford to put a nice little swim dock in and a diving dock in. And I, I am going to swim in the pond. What do you think people did before we had pools? You design a pond right, there's no problem swimming in it. So I would really consider that's a much more sustainable and regenerative thing, and it adds a lot more value uh, to your property. Now, there are real estate agents that say, above-ground pools don't add any value to a home. Well, it did in the three that I sold with them and put into it. In fact, the one we know absolutely was a huge, huge motivation for the buyer. So it's not that they don't add value to the house. They just generally don't add as much value as the cost of initial installation, unless you're there long enough to let all those things work out. So ponds add value to property. So especially if we can do a deep pond or maybe a pond with a cutout deep end with that swim dock, oh, now you got fish, now you got water, you got way more water. So really, if it was me and I was choosing between a pond and a pool, I would take the pond, but I know it would take some selling to get my wife to be willing to swim in it, and she probably wouldn't. Um, man, but Michigan, you can, uh, boy, it's a lot easier to even keep a pond nice up there than it is down here. So just something to consider. With that knocked out, it's time to uh, wrap up the show yet again. We've come to the end of another episode together. Remember, one of the ways you can support us is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And there's a lot of really great stuff that you can check out on tspaz. 
things I've reviewed over the years, new items I continue to review for you. Today I have an item I've brought around many times. It's a Mr. Coffee Grinder. Ah, how's that a preparedness item? I believe that if you are a good cook, you are better suited to survive modern society. And I believe saving money is a good thing. Even if you want to talk raw preps, the more money you save, the more money you have for those preps, homesteading, etc. Well, this coffee grinder, I very seldom grind coffee with it. I'm a big believer in I buy coffee pre-ground and I vacuum seal it and freeze it if it's going to be around for very long, right? And I don't care what anybody says. I can't tell the difference when I take the coffee out of the deep freezer that was frozen and deep sealed, you know, a year ago than today. In fact, I've deep, I've, uh, vacuum sealed it and thrown it up in the closet upstairs and a year later I'll put them side by side. I can't tell the difference. So I'm not big on fresh ground coffee. I know I'm in the cold sauce. I'm going to listen to it and go, oh, my God. Oh, that's horrible. Hey, man, each his own. What I am big on is grinding your spices when you're making your spices and seasoning mixes. And this allows for bulk purchase and to make your own spice and seasoning mixes. And that's the main thing that I do with my grinder. If you go and look at the review today, you'll see my go-to uh, spice mix rub for chicken and pork on the grill. It's fantastic. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to have to go look it up if you want to get it. But this grinder, they're 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 not expensive, guys. They're 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 cheap. 13 bucks with free shipping on Prime. Four stars overall review with 2,165 customer reviews. You know, a grade on fake spots. So it's not fake phony reviews. Uh, as always, I recommend the best thing for you. And and I'll, I'll tell you what, just a ton of people. Use these things mostly for the thing that I'm talking about. You know, throw some cardamom pod and some star anise and some coriander, and we're making a we're making a kind of Mediterranean head toward an Arabic rub, and just using those those whole spices because the spices derive most of their flavor contribution from oils, and as soon as we grind them, those oils begin to be released. And by keeping them whole, we get more of a freshness from them. That's why when you take pepper and you have a pepper shaker and you shake pepper on your food, it even a little bit of pepper smell, but not really much. When you take that grinder and you go crack, 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 it has that amazing smell. Those are those oils. And they're very volatile and they get released very, very quickly. So that's why I'm a big fan of this. Check it out. And remember, you can always help us by shopping at tspaz.com. Next up, Song of the Day. Song of the Day is a cool one today. It's by Brooks and Dunn. It's called I Believe. And um, I told John Adam when I when I saw what the song was, you know, even though I, I don't consider myself a, a person of faith, uh, I love this song, and it's it's really almost a gospel song. You know, more and more the words that are, that are written in red is he's talking about reading that, and there's there's a part of it that almost sounds like a gospel music, but it's a beautiful song. What I love about it is is multifaceted. Number one, I'm in this song. From not a single individual like is in a song, but he talks about his mom sending him to, to talk to this old man from time to time that dies in, during the, the course of this this song and and what have you, and striking up a friendship. And as a kid, my grandmother sent me with bags of stuff from the garden and other things to all of the elderly people in the community, and I had interactions with them and communications with them, including discussions about life and death. And I think that's so valuable and something so many of our kids are not getting anymore. And it's probably a big part of, even though I have some screwed up things in my past, well, I'm a lot more balanced, I think, than the average person. Uh, especially the, you know, the 40-year-olds from 20, 20 years from now, I, I worry, man. Um, so that part is huge. But then there is the concept of, 
there's there's something beyond where we're at. There's some higher power because because I don't consider myself to be a Christian like many of you are. Uh, I think many people don't think I have faith as a deist, and the only thing I have as a deist is faith. I have no evidence. I have logic and reason, but I don't have evidence. But I do, you know, there's one line in the song that says, I can't believe it all ends with just a slow ride in a hearse. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know what's next for us. And no one really does. But I believe there's something. Something in some way and somehow. And even if there isn't, I believe in living as though there is. Because it's so much more fulfilling. Because by believing there's something more, I believe we get the most out of today. And I've talked to atheists that, that, that have a complete different view. Well, if you if you know there's something more, then you know this doesn't really matter. No, this matters so much. This matters so much. What we're doing today matters so much. Because I have a limited amount of time. Whether I continue on or not, I have a limited amount of time to impact the lives of the people I love and care about. I have a limited amount of time to impact the lives of my children and their children. I have a limited amount of time to leave a legacy, no matter what happens next. And as far as the words written in red, man, I'm with Thomas Jefferson. I may not share your faith, but I think maybe the, the, the finest morality ever put into a moral code comes out of the Christian faith. So all in all, I love this song, and I know many of you will as well. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Old man Wrigley lived in that white house Down the street where I grew up Mama used to send me over with things We struck a friendship up Spent a few long summers out on his old porch swing Said he was in the war Went in the Navy Lost his wife Lost his baby Broke down and asked him one time How you keep from going crazy He said I see my wife and son In just a little while What he meant. He looked at me and smiled, said I raise my hands, bow my head. I'm finding more and more truth in the words written in red. And tell me that there's more to life than just what I can see. Later, I was off at college Talking to mom on the phone one night Getting all caught up on the gossip The ins and outs of the small town life She said, oh, by the way, son Old man Wrigley's died Later 
on that night I lay there thinking back Thought about a couple long lost summers I didn't know whether to cry There was ever anybody Deserved a ticket to the other side It'd be that sweet old man Look me in the eye, said I raise my hands, bow my head, finding more and more truth in the words written in red. They tell me that there's more to life than just what I can see. the book the chapter or the verse you can't tell me it all ends in a slow ride in a hearse you know I'm more and more convinced the longer that I live yeah this can't be no this can't be no this can't be I believe. Mm-hmm. I believe. I believe.